Well, friends, Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, he once, he once said this. He said, the prophets have a strange way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. That's, that's his summary of how the prophets are written. And I think that Luther was exaggerating a little bit, but when I read that, it comforted me. It comforted me to know that even Luther, this great reformer in the Reformation, also read the prophets at times and thought, what in the world are these guys saying? Right? Because there's this statement followed by that judgment, followed by this hope, and all of it just kind of intertwines and is all jumbled together. And so if you've ever read through the prophets in the Old Testament, and you and you've gotten confused from time to time, the good news is that, you're, uh, is that you are in good company. You're in good company even with Luther and uh, the rest of us, if we're all being honest. And friends, Micah is no exception to the rule. Micah is one of those prophets where you can sort of get lost in all the emotions and all the movements of the book. Uh, I was just reading it together with Richard yesterday at the coffee shop, and after we read it, he just kind of went, wow. So that was like a roller coaster. And it really is. There's this sort of up and down movement throughout the book. And there's three rounds of prophecies. So there's judgment followed by hope. Judgment followed by hope. Judgment followed by hope. Chapters 1 through 2. Chapters 3 through 5. Chapters 6 through 7. Judgment and hope. Up and down. Like a roller coaster. In Richard's words. So that's the structure that we see in this book. When we read it, and while it can be difficult at times for us to follow it, there is something really special about Micah because Micah is home to some of the most beloved passages that we have in the Old Testament. And we're going to get to see some of them together uh, this morning. And I think that you'll find there's no reason to be afraid of this book, that you can approach this book with God's help and with confidence and know that, yes, we can, as we sit here this morning, grasp the message of Micah. We really can. Last week we read about the prophet Jonah. And we saw the compassion that God had for Nineveh. And we saw the lack of compassion that Jonah had for Nineveh. And we saw that the book of Jonah ultimately is a call for those who've received God's compassion to now go and display God's compassion to others. So we saw something about God. And we saw something about how to respond to who God is and what He's done for us. Well, this morning, Micah is going to help us see more of who God is. And we're going to find out what God delights in. What does God love? What does God cherish? And what does God require from you and me? And what will God do if we don't delight in the things that He delights in? What if we love and cherish and do the opposite? In fact, it might be a good time to ask yourself this question before we start diving into the book. What do I delight in? What do I love? What do I daydream about? What is on my mind and my heart constantly? What do I think that God requires of me? So this morning, we're going to open up this book, this Old Testament book, this minor prophet. We're going to ask three questions 
of the book of Micah. We're going to ask, what do sinners delight in? Sinners like you and me. Apart from God, apart from a relationship with Him, what do sinners delight in? Second, what does God delight in? That's the second question we're going to ask. What does God delight in? And third, how should we then respond? So the first question we're asking is, what do sinners delight in? And you might already start pushing back. You might be thinking, what in the world is Matt going to tell me about me? And I have a couple of responses to that. The first response is that I'm a sinner too. And so there's nothing that I'm going to put before us this morning in this room that I'm not willing to say to myself. Because I myself know the everyday battle that it takes to live out the new man that I am in Christ. So that's, that's number one. Number two, the response to this question of who's the preacher going to say, what's he going to say about me? I think I know who I am. The second response to that is that I'm reading the words of God this morning. And perhaps God knows us better than we know ourselves. We tend to trick ourselves. We tend to think that we know who we truly are. And so we, because what we do with, with, with us and our heart is we just listen to our gut. And we think that we're just in tune with our own feelings. And we know in our heart of hearts who we really are when it comes down to it. But the Bible says this in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Which means that we are not able to interpret things clearly without help. We need God's help to see things as they really are, to see them as he sees them, even if it comes to who we are and what we delight in. And friends, that should matter. It should matter. We should want to know what does God think about me? Not just what do I think about me, but what does God think? Because He's God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the judge overall. So what does God also think of me? Well, friends, there's this helpful passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It tells us who we are apart from a relationship with Jesus. And it shows us the problem of humanity. So all the brokenness that's wrapped up in our world and in our own lives finds its root ultimately in this passage. So here's Ephesians 2. It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So all people, apart from a relationship with God, are described there in Ephesians 2, 1-3. through 3. First it says, dead to sin. I'm sorry, dead in sin. It says, dead in sin. It says, following the course of the world, which is doing what the world does. It says, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, doing the things of Satan and following in his ways. Not just the ways of the world, but following in the ways of Satan. And so we might say, well, see, there's the problem. 
The problem is with the world and the problem is with Satan. The problem's not with me and what I delight in. But then verse 3 says we lived in the passion of our flesh and carried out the desires of our body and mind. Which means we were not forced to sin. We had a passion for sin. We had a desire to do it. So we are asking the right question when we approach Micah. What does Micah teach us about what sinners delight in? And I see at least three things. And they all start with the word false. So I'll make it easy. First, sinners delight in false worship. The Israelites of Micah's day that Micah was prophesying to, they were just going through the motions of religion. They didn't have a real heart for God. They didn't have a real heart for God's ways. Their commitment was only as deep as just showing up and doing, and doing the things. Showing up and doing the rituals. Showing up and doing the traditions. That was their commitment to God. So here we have Micah chapter 6, verse 6-7. So you have a copy of God's Word. Maybe get that ready because we will be flipping from time to time through this book so we can see the whole message. Here's Micah 6, 6-7. That's false worship on display. It says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings? With yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? In 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn? For my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. In the sinful human heart, there is a desire for false worship. And there's sarcasm from Micah's mouth here in Micah 6. And there's a couple of problems that surface in the passage that we just read. Because it's like Micah is quoting It's like he's quoting the nonsense of the people around him who are deeply religious, for sure. I mean, they would be willing to follow a laundry list of rules to maintain some kind of external adherence to religion that makes them look good. Willing to follow all the lists, but unwilling to follow the Lord. They think God would delight in a thousand rams. But their hearts are not really concerned with what God delights in. The hearts are concerned with what they delight in, with what makes them look good, what makes them feel good, and what makes them seem spiritual. In fact, they're willing to go to such great lengths to save themselves, which is the epitome of false worship. Because they say that they could sacrifice their firstborn to make up for their sin. The human heart delights in false worship. We, we love to get really close to the things of God. We love to get really close to the ideas of God without getting too close to God Himself. We love to think that we can devise all of these thoughts about who God is on our own and our own paths to salvation without hearing what it is that God actually has to say in the matter. We love to claim a right relationship with the Lord even though everything else in our lives denies Him. So perhaps we go through the motions of church. We go through the motions of Bible reading, but we avoid the deeper intimacy with fellowship with God through meditation and prayer and walking with Him daily in obedience. And it's like Isaiah said, which Isaiah and Micah were on par in a lot of these things. 
Isaiah said, the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Paul says in 1 Timothy that there are people who hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So they hold to a form of it, but they've denied its power completely. Friends, there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. But in our sin, we delight in carving out our own ways to Him. We think, if I do this, and I do that, then God is going to look kindly upon me and accept me. If I do this much, and I do that much, that's going to be my 1,000 rams. That's going to be my 10,000 rivers of oil that I can give to God to impress Him by how good I am. If I do this thing or that thing, that's going to remove the guilt of my sin because I can do enough good to outweigh the evil. And God won't mind. Surely He thinks I'm good enough. This is all false worship. Or perhaps we think God is pleased just because I go to church and I serve here and I serve there and I give this much money and I do all the right outward things, but I don't follow Him. And I don't love my wife well. And I'm rude to my co-workers and so on. And friends, there's nothing wrong with doing the right things externally. But if we aren't in a right relationship with God, and we just think going through the motions is going to make everything okay, there is something deeply wrong with that picture. God does not delight in false worship because He only delights in us worshiping Him. And when we have a false idea of who He is and a false idea of what pleases Him and we worship that figment of our imagination, it is not false. It's not real worship. It's not true worship. It's false worship. And our hearts have a tendency to delight in it. We also have a tendency to delight in false hope. The Israelites... They had come um, to trust and hope in the work of their own hands. So whether it was their cities and all these big giant walls that would protect them and all the military and armies that they'd have around them to protect them, or whether it was the idols uh, with all the powers and, and all the abilities that these idols had that they made with their own hands to watch over them, they trusted in the work of their own hands. They had a false sense of hope. They hoped in themselves. They hoped in what they'd accomplished. They pridefully trusted in me instead of trusting in the true provider. And so God says this in chapter 5, verses 10 through 13. Micah 5 10 through 13. It will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will also cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of of your hands. Sinners delight to bow down to the work of their own hands, and God despises it. Friends, one of our deepest tendencies is to hope and to trust in the gift instead of the giver. 
to worship and to delight in the creation instead of the creator. And so we bow down and we boast in our accomplishments and we boast in our things that we've built in our money and our success and our knowledge. But we fail to recognize them as gifts. So we trust ourselves. We hope in ourselves. We bow down to the work of our own hands. And I just remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is everything you have you've received from God. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so the point is that everything that we have, we've received from God. So we have no reason to boast, no reason to bow down to the work of our own hands. I mean, our trust should never be in what it is that we do. Our trust should not be in our own hands, not to eat tomorrow, not to be safe next week, and certainly not to be saved before an almighty God. So just consider, where are the areas in your life where you bow down to the work of your own hands? Where do you trust in yourself instead of trusting in the Lord? And friend, realize that the only way to be saved is to turn from your false hope. The way of salvation is to hope in God alone to save you. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, recognize, recognize that the old man, the old woman, the flesh is going to have a tendency to trust in self. And the temptation is going to be to take your eyes off of Christ and to look to the work of your own hands for hope. And so you'll start thinking about, will I persevere? Will I make it to the end? Will God receive me in the end? And you'll start looking at your performance instead of the cross. The third thing we see sinners delight in is false teaching. If we turn to Chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to be reading from the ESV here because it's, I think, a little, makes it a little bit more clear in chapter 2. Um, Micah, up to this point of chapter 2 in, in, in this book, has been declaring the truth. He's been proclaiming that judgment is coming, that God is going to judge sinners. The question is, how do the listeners respond? And so he, he quotes them. And we see that the listeners of Micah's message is they respond by despising the truth and delighting in lies. They despise the truth and they delight in lies. So here's Micah chapter 2 verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Don't come and tell us these things, Micah. Because what you're saying can't be true. God is loving. He's kind. He's never going to judge us. We don't have to worry about that. So they go and they preach at the preacher to not preach. Because they don't like the preaching. You have to listen carefully. It's not preaching that they despise. They don't have anything wrong with someone getting up in front of somebody and saying something. And don't buy that lie in our culture today that preaching is outdated. People are standing in front of a TV, in front of crowds, all the time saying stuff. 
and giving people thoughts and ideas and worldviews. It's not the fact that someone's preaching or talking or teaching that they hate it. They don't despise the act of preaching. They despise what was being preached. Don't preach these things. That won't happen. Disgrace is not going to happen to us. But then if you look down at verse 11 of that chapter, of chapter 2, Micah kind of assesses his audience and their heart. And this is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies. So not if somebody preached the truth, but if somebody came and uttered wind, uttered lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. If he uttered the truth, they would despise him. But if he uttered uttered lies, they would love him. And they would welcome him. They delight in false teaching. A sermon about judgment is off limits. But a sermon about abundance, that's welcome. You can preach, but we're going to tell you what to preach. A sermon about sin, a sermon about God's wrath, a sermon about needing to be saved, that's off limits. Just come and tell us things that sound good and that make me feel good. And it reminds me of what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They desire false teaching, so they find teachers that will just utter wind, utter lies, utter sweet nothings into their ear. So I wonder as you sit here this morning and you hear the things being preached, I wonder if you're receptive to the Word of God. And if you're not receptive to what God's Word says about us in our sin, apart from a relationship with God, I wonder what that might say about your heart. And the question to be, uh, the question we should ask ourselves and the question we should ask others is, do you avoid the Bible? And do you avoid the Bible's teachings because you know it's not true or because you don't want it to be? If God sent a prophet, it's because he has something to say. And if he's preserved the words of these prophets and these apostles in the New Testament so that we have a book called the Bible that we can read and hear what God has to say, it's because he has something to tell us and he wants to communicate to us. And we should listen. We should listen to the one who will never utter lies. And we should take him at his word. And we should respond with faith and repentance. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we delight ourselves in the truth? Or do we delight ourselves in false teaching? So these are the things that the sinner delights in. Now there's one summary phrase, just to kind of put a capstone on this part. And I want you to see this, this very point. It's in chapter 3, verse 2. It's sort of a summary verse of us apart from a relationship with God. 
And it says this, chapter 3, verse 2, You who hate good and love evil. Hate good and love evil. Micah knows that sin is a matter of delight. Apart from being given a new heart from God, we hate good and love evil. Sinners sin because they want to. Because we delight in sin. It brings joy. It's something that feels good. Something we want. That means, friends, that salvation is more than just some decision we make at some point in time. It's having our loves reoriented so that we now hate sin and love God. And so what I want us to do for the rest of our time this morning is now turn to see who God is and what God delights in so that you would fall in love with Him, perhaps for the first time or perhaps all over again. This whole book declares judgment against sinners who delight in sin. God is going to punish sinners. We must have our sins dealt with. But I want to show you in particular what God delights in in the book of Micah. Perhaps he would delight in wrath. Perhaps he would enjoy fury with all of his heart. Or I suppose he, he might find deep joy in destroying the wicked. I mean, surely, would, surely God would have every right in this book, if He wanted to, to proclaim only damnation. We're sinners. We deserve nothing from God. Surely God would have every right just to declare His judgment. But the truth is, is that if God did that and only declared judgment, He wouldn't have been faithful to Himself. He wouldn't have been faithful to Him and what He delights in. Despite all of our sin, what we find in chapter 7 is that God delights in faithful love. So let's read the last few verses of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? And passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob in unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. Verse 18 at the beginning before seeing this remarkable passage about who God is just asks the question who is a God like you? And that is the obvious question to ask isn't it when you finally find out who the true God is? Who is a God like you? I would have never thought that you would be this way. And friends that's because we live in a culture today that isn't very perplexed by the fake God they've created. Because their God doesn't care what you do. He, he approves of all your desires. He, he gives a round of applause for your sin. But, and that's because there really is no sin at all. What you like is what you like. What you want to do is what you want to do. And God approves it. You set the stage. 
You say what you want to happen. God will be right there to cheer you on. In fact, the bolder you are about your sin, the more proud God is going to be of you. Bold sin equals brave. Bold sin equals brave saint. This picture of God doesn't perplex us. It doesn't confound us. It doesn't confuse us because it's just like us. We've just created God in our own image. I read a quote one time that said, God created man in his image and man returned the favor. We created God in our own image. That doesn't complex us. But the God of the Bible is different. He judges and He punishes sinners severely. He hates that we delight in false worship. He hates that we delight in false hope. He hates that we delight in false teaching. And He will judge sinners. And then we get to the end of this book and we find out that God does more than just hate sin, but He also delights in unchanging love. That's the last phrase of verse 18. He delights in unchanging love. So when we read verse 18, it says, He pardons iniquity. He passes over rebellious acts. He does not keep His anger forever. Verse 19, He will have compassion on us. He will cast all their sin into the depths of the sea. And when you read that, how can you not respond with that question? Who is a God like you? Because we know when we read that that no one is a God like our God. So my dear friends, I just ask, have you come face to face with God in such a true way that you have broken out in some shape, form or fashion with this praise of who is a God like you, O Lord, that I would be so wicked and so sinful and yet you loved me and sent your son to die on the cross for me and cast my sins into the depths of the sea. You see, God has unfailing love for His chosen people. For the remnant that will repent and believe. That's what verse 18 says. God passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession. He has a special love for those that He is committed to saving. And that repent and trust in Him and believe in Him and have faith in Him. And that love for them is unchanging. It is unfailing. So the question is, what does that mean for you who've placed your faith in Jesus? Or for all of you who maybe would come to place your faith in Jesus? If God delights in unfaithful, if God delights in faithful love, what does that mean for us? It means that He is committed to us out of a commitment ultimately to Himself. That if you're a Christian, He has a keeping, saving, protecting, comforting love for you that will never fade away because He delights in faithful love. He loves to love you. So when you're at home at night and the guilt overcomes your heart, the challenge is to grab hold of this passage and to remember that your standing in Christ is not up to you. It's up to God's commitment to you. And if you begin to question whether or not God is committed to you as a believer, then you need to ask yourself this question in return. If you start thinking, is God committed to me, really to me? 
a sinner like me, who's trusted in Him, I know. But is He really committed to me? Then you respond with this question in your mind as you meditate on Scripture and you say, well, what does God delight in? Well, He delights in unchanging love. I might change. I might wonder. I might trip and stumble. But God's, God delights in unchanging, faithful love. And friends, this to me is such a profound statement to find that God delights in faithful love because it means several things. If we were to just, we could spend all week just meditating on that phrase and applying it to all kinds of areas of my life. But I just, I have one way to, to share this with you as my meditation was on this verse this week. Here's one thing that really made me stop and think. It really made me think, God, who is a God like you? That since God delights in unchanging love, that means His commitment to us is not a burden to Him. It's not that He's just faithful. It's not that He's just loving. I mean, sometimes I know. I hardly ever struggle to know that God is loving. I know that God loves me. I know that He's faithful to me. But sometimes I wonder, does He want to be? Does He want to love me? Or is He reluctantly loving? Does He want to be faithful to us? Or is He grumbling as He does it? As Matt speaks a burden to God, are you, as a Christian, a burden to God? Always letting Him down. Always failing. Always wandering away. So, Is God fed up with you? Does He want to even do it anymore? Well, according to Micah 7, 18, He delights in it. He delights in unchanging love. It's His joy to keep you. It's His joy to sanctify you. It's His joy to help you up again. It's His joy to hold your head above the water. It's His joy to carry you home safely. He delights in it. I was watching uh, the documentary called Puritan. All of life to the glory of God. Some of you have seen it. And Gloria Furman makes this really important comment in that movie. She says that she doesn't really struggle with whether or not God is powerful enough to save her. She knows God is powerful enough to save her. Where she struggles is the question of willingness. Is He willing to save her? And then she remembers the cross. And the cross is not only this display of God's power to forgive sin. It's the perfect picture of His willingness to do it. I mean, it was Jesus Christ who walked around this earth and a leper comes up to Him and says, If you're willing... And he reaches out his hand and says, I am willing. Be cleansed. Jesus said he is gentle and lowly and that all who are burdened and heavy laden can come to him. He welcomes them. The only prerequisite is that you be burdened, is that you be lowly and he will give you rest. He delights in faithful love. This is who God is. And the beautiful thing about Micah is that we don't have to guess about what God would do to save sinners. How is He going to satisfy His his justice to where He punishes sin? Because we see that all throughout Micah. And still have love and compassion and grace on the remnant. 
How is he going to do it? And chapter 5, verses 2 through 5 takes us right there. It's this famous passage where the birth of Jesus is predicted. So here it is, Micah 5. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Jerusalem. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. The person from the days of eternity is going to be born of a woman. I mean, that sounds a lot like God becoming a man, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus. And that phrase at the beginning of verse 5 says, This one, Jesus, will be our peace. And that's what we need. We need peace. Primarily peace with God. And there's no other way to have it other than through the one of ancient of days who would be born of the Virgin Mary. Our sins can only be cast into the sea if they are first cast onto the shoulders of Jesus on the cross so that all who trust in Him will have forgiveness of their sins and they will have peace with God. Friends, in your own time, I just encourage you to read Micah chapter 4, the first five verses of Micah 4, because there we see that God is going to make all things new. For those who have peace with Him, they are then going to have peace with one another. His power is going to extend to all the nations, and all the nations will be together. They will love one another. This is the church. The day, as we see in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to be worshiping Him. He's going to be our God. We're going to be His people. Jesus is our peace. God delights in unchanging love. My question to you is, do you know that you need peace with God? Do you know that you've delighted in sin? That you've delighted in false worship? And delighted in false hope? And delighted in false teaching? Do you know that you deserve punishment from God and that your only hope is to have Him save you? Then how do you respond? How do you respond to this truth? You've you've seen what sinners like you and me delight in apart from God. You've seen what God delights in. Now we must respond. So let me show you one more passage in Micah here. It tells us exactly how to respond to this message. It's in Micah 7 once again. Verses 8 through 9. Here's Micah responding. He says... Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. Until He pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see His righteousness. Micah recognizes that he has fallen. And it's not just because he stumbled. It's not just because he made a mistake. It's because he knows he sinned against God. That's what he says. And his only hope for being saved 
by, from God's wrath due to his sin is for God to plead his case. Is for God to execute justice for him. The God that he sinned against, the one he's receiving indignation for, from the God of wrath, Micah says, I'll wait until he executes justice for me. Which means the one who has the power to punish us must be the one who forgives us. The way you respond to this message is by recognizing your sin towards God and knowing that God Himself must be the one to forgive you and that He's done so by sending His Son to die on the cross in your place. Micah 6.8 has these beautiful words. He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So turn from your sin. Don't continue to love evil and hate good, but turn from your sin and walk humbly with your God. And how do you walk humbly with your God? Don't delight in false worship and in your own ideas of who God is. Don't delight in false hope by trusting in the work of your hands. Don't delight in false teaching by rejecting the truth that you've heard, but walk humbly with God. Receive His truth. Turn from the work of your own hands and trust in the work of Jesus Christ.